In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. My grandmother had a best friend named Phyllis. They grew up together. They went to high school together and then college, and then they moved to the same town and had kids at the same time and stayed best friends for the rest of their lives, raising their families basically together. Then in retirement, they spent their days playing tennis, going to the movies, having lunch, and spending summers down the shore in Avalon, New Jersey. Judy and Phyllis were best friends. My grandmother, Judy, died first in 2002. And Phyllis was, of course, devastated. As she helped my mother go through my grandmother's things, she started to cry. Tears fell down her cheeks. And as she wiped them away, she apologized. Oh, I'm sorry, she said. Your mother wouldn't cry like this. I never saw Judy cry. My mother and I later reflected on what Phyllis said. We certainly saw my grandmother cry. And we thought Phyllis and Judy were college roommates. They were together through World War II when my, grandmother, my grandfather was serving in North Africa. They had gone to each other's weddings, survived between them the birth of six children. One of those children survived childhood cancer. And then eventually they were each divorced. So their lives were long and hard with many various disappointments and sorrows. And yet Phyllis never saw Judy cry? It just doesn't really make sense. Why didn't Phyllis see my grandmother cry? I'm thinking about crying because of our gospel passage this morning, the long story from John, which contains in translation to English in the King James Version, it has the shortest sentence in scripture, Jesus wept. Or as it appears in our version this morning, Jesus began to weep. The translation is more than crying, more than a few tears that could easily be wiped away, but rather weeping. Jesus, God, wept. This story is a turning point in the Gospel of John from the section of the book that shows Jesus' signs to the section of the book that shows Jesus' glory. The transition happens with a story that focuses intensely on Jesus' humanity through showing us Jesus' emotions. The story of Jesus and his good friends as they face death. We learn that Jesus has friends who are siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They live outside Jerusalem in Bethany. Lazarus is sick, so Mary sends a note for Jesus with hope that he can help. 
Jesus gets the note but decides to wait a few days to visit, saying explicitly that Lazarus's illness will not lead to death, but rather is to show God's glory. When Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Mary and Martha are angry. They each say to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus sees Mary weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was greatly disturbed in spirit, the scripture says, and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. And so Jesus, disturbed, as the text says, calls out to Lazarus in the tomb. And bound up in the strips of cloth, put on a body at death. The same word for the bands of cloth Jesus wore as a baby in the manger. And the same word that describes what he will wear again soon in his own tomb. Lazarus stands and exits the tomb. Through this sign, Jesus' call and Lazarus' resuscitation, the people who see it come to believe in Jesus' power. This gospel story poses some problems for us, sort of like Phyllis's insistence that she never saw my grandmother cry. I find myself scratching my head at some of the parts of this story. They just don't make sense. First, did Jesus really let his beloved friend die just so that he could perform a sign? And if he knew exactly how this was going to play out, why was he so emotional about it? Next, Jesus says, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So why do we, who do believe in Jesus now, why do we die? And last, when the Messiah comes, the world is supposed to be made new. There will be no more death, no more sadness. But as we can all see, there is plenty of death and sadness all around us. So how does this work? Well, I think the power, the turning point is in the tears. There's a quote, an aphorism, that is on famous quotation lists and has been for years and years. Sometimes it is attributed to Dr. Johnson, sometimes to Washington Irving, sometimes to Rumi. It was probably written by an anonymous newspaper editor at the turn of the 19th century. But regardless of its origin, it has persisted been read at funerals, posted on the walls of hospitals because of a truth that it bears. It says, there is a sacredness in tears. 
They are not a mark of weakness, but of power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming grief, of deep contrition, and of unspeakable love. I think this is how Jesus' tears function in this gospel story. But because it is Jesus, they are a mark of weakness as power. The power is not in spite of their weakness, but because of it. They are holy and they do something. The tears coming from Jesus' huge love for his friends participate in, create, make real the raising of Lazarus. Like waters of baptism, salty tears bring forth new life. But are tears always like this? Is it as easy as having a good cry to participate in resurrection power alongside Jesus? We have a big book of fairy tales at our house, and our three-year-old son, Harry, loves flipping through the pages looking at the elaborate illustrations. Who dat? Where da witch? Why he doing that? The other day, he wanted to read the story of the frog prince for the first time. We had been stuck on the little pigs for a very long time. But he finally wanted to move on to the frog prince. And in the version of these fairy tales that we have, the princess spends the whole first half of the story weeping. She's weeping because she lost her ball. She's weeping because she has to spend time with a slimy frog. She's weeping because her father, the king, is telling her what to do. She is weeping here, she's weeping there, she's weeping all over the place. Harry kept stopping me. What weeping? He never heard the word before. It's crying a lot, really hard, I told him. But of course, three-year-olds need to know more. Why is she weeping? Why is she not crying? She is crying. She's just crying really hard. So we use the word weeping. What weeping? <laughs> the cycle continues with a three-year-old, of course. And I think in his three-year-old way, Harry was really parsing out something about tears, about emotion about discerning what is real, what is guttural, what is sacred, versus what is manipulative, unearned, or disintegrated from self. In our contemporary culture, there is a kind of tears, sometimes called white woman tears, used by white people like me to maintain our privileges. In America, this has its roots in slavery, where white women found their power in the plantation system by wielding their emotions. But we can see this same power structure at play in our own scripture from generations before. Sarah, when she casts Hagar out of the tent and into the wilderness. Potiphar's wife, when she lies about Joseph to get him sent to prison. 
In The Frog Prince, the princess loses a literal golden ball, which causes her to burst into sobs. These tears are an archetypal introduction to this concept that a privileged person weeps when our power or wealth or influence is lost. Those tears do have a certain power, but it is not weakness that gives it that. They are not of God, and they are not the same kind of weeping that Jesus does in his story. My mother and I have a theory about Phyllis and my grandmother. Phyllis never saw my grandmother cry because they were always crying together through each sorrow and crisis. Not that tears make us blind, but rather that Phyllis shared my grandmother's emotion so deeply she felt it was her own. She was crying, not my grandmother. God is like that. God reaches a hand toward our tears. Jesus wept with Mary and Martha, and in so doing, God participates in our sorrow with us, bearing the burden of the pain. What can be frustrating about Jesus is that he does not always plainly tell us why the world is full of pain. Instead, he shares that pain, he tells stories, and he invites us into relationship with him. What is miraculous about Jesus' model of empathy in this story, the power of his tears, is that we know they are also preparing himself for his own death. Our own practice of empathy with others helps us prepare for and release fear about our own futures, the inevitable joys and sorrows that await us in life. And it's why we read this story together on the last Sunday in Lent as we gear up to walk alongside Jesus in his final days in the weeks ahead. So this morning, where in your life might you, like Phyllis, not even recognize the power you have? The power you have through your ability to be with, alongside those you love. The world will be changed, as Jesus promises us, when we all realize the sacredness of our tears. Amen.